Coming up this evening, an NTD business. Russia says it's reducing forces in two Ukrainian cities, including Kyiv. That's after peace talks proved promising. Senator Elizabeth Warren praising President Biden's new billionaire tax. You'll want to hear what she said about Elon Musk. Lockdowns could be costing China billions of dollars per week. That hasn't stopped Shanghai entering its third day of lockdowns. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Paul Graney here live from New York City. Russia says it's cutting down on its military activity near Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, and another city in northern Ukraine. That's after two representatives from the two countries met in Turkey to negotiate with hopes of eventually signing a peace deal. Russia's top negotiator said the latest talks were productive and that Russian President Vladimir Putin may even meet with the Ukrainian president if it coincides with the signing of a deal. Ukraine's proposal is to remain a neutral nation that will not try to get nuclear weapons. It's, not, it's unclear what neutrality would look like exactly. Ukraine's top negotiator said Russia must completely withdraw from Ukraine. And it looks like the progress lifted global markets today. European stocks climbed to five-week highs. The stock's 600 index on track for its first monthly gain this year. Asian markets also gained for the most part. Back in the States, Wall Street also up the Dow and S&P, notching their fourth straight session of gains. The Dow rose 338 points, almost 1%. The S&P 500 gained 56 points, 1 and 2 tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq gained 265 points, 1 and 8 tenths of a percent today. Meanwhile, oil prices fell again today. U.S. crude WTI briefly fell below $100 a barrel before rebounding to $104 per barrel. Brent crude at about $110. Good news for energy prices. Also good news on the jobs front. Job openings are near record highs in the U.S. According to new data from the Commerce Department, shows over 11 million job openings in the last day of February. It's close to a record in December. The job openings show just how badly businesses need workers. That's allowing Americans to demand higher wages to help with rising prices, though. Annual inflation hit a 40-year high last month at 7.9%. That's pushing up home prices even higher. The latest numbers from the U.S. National Home Price Index show prices rose more than 19% in January from the year before. That's the fourth-largest year-over-year jump in the 35 years since the index came out. So joining us to discuss housing is one half of the Real Estate Guys podcast duo, Russell Gray. Russ, great to see you. Thanks for having me. Russ, are home prices going to keep going up? Well, you know, if you look at inflation and that the cost of materials, the cost of energy, the cost of labor, uh, it seems like inflation is not transitory. And so all of those components of cost, including taxes, they're all in the cost to build a, a new home. And so if you have a population uh, that is growing and, you know, granted the United States population has not been growing as it's been, you still have a fair amount of demand because you've got this giant uh, 
millennial generation that's coming into that home buying season. If you remember what the baby boomers did, this is an even bigger demographic. And I don't hear a lot of people talking about it. So uh, kind of a long answer to say, yeah, I think that they probably will. Not saying that if the credit markets blow up or interest rates rise, there won't be a pullback. But I think if you step back from that, what I believe would be a temporary blip, I think, you know, over the next 10 years, prices will be higher for homes in 10 years than they are right now. And even this far into the pandemic, builders are still struggling to finish homes. Yeah, well, they have the labor issue. We've certainly had supply chain issues. Uh, and you have a lot of uncertainty. You're, you're talking about projects that take many months, if not a couple of years, from the time you conceive them till you're ready to deliver product. And when you have this much uncertainty in the landscape as entrepreneurs, as builders, uh, you've got to you've got to tread lightly. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, not talking to those guys on a daily basis, but if I was sitting in their seat, I would be really thinking carefully about how much capital I'm going to deploy, not knowing what the landscape is going to be like in a year or two. I think I'm going to let the field settle a little bit. Are you seeing any other interesting trends now that the single family homes have gone up so much in price? Well, you continue to see the big institutions moving into the space. I think that when people who are deploying large amounts of capital are looking for safe havens. Uh, U.S. real estate, U.S. housing, which is about as fundamental as it gets, is pretty attractive. And it used to be people would go into high-end office in premier cities like San Francisco and New York, but that hasn't been the safe haven it's been since COVID and the remote workforce uh, office and even retail. Those are, those are traditional sectors for real estate money to flee into not so safe. So I think that you're seeing a lot of in, in apartments and uh, multifamily, you know, bigger, but also people are making a move into single family for sure. So it's not just Main Street, it's, it's institutional money. How about just your regular mom and pop investor? Maybe they're priced out of a single family home market, or maybe they're looking for alternative investments, you know, crowdfunding or, or different uh, varieties of, of real estate. Are we seeing any changes this year? Well, I think you've got two groups of people. You've got people who are looking for a home to live in, and you've got people who are looking to uh, buy real estate as an investment. A lot of people look at their home as an investment, and when you have this kind of appreciation, what we call equity happening, when you have that going on, people begin to look more at their home as an investment. And I think that this latest blip that we saw with the Case-Shiller Index, where January was this big pop, I think had a lot of people saying, hey, interest rates are rising. Uh, inflation is killing me. I've got to find a way to make more money. I need to own things that go up in value. Uh, I can combine all of that by rushing in and grabbing a 30-year loan while it's still affordable. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me to see it slow down a little bit in subsequent quarters. We'll have to wait and see. But I, I do believe there was a little bit of a rush, you know, fear of missing out. And also, I want to get in while the getting's good in case the thing turns. So I think I think we've seen some of that. That would have been an interesting cycle to fall into. Russ Gray, real estate guys, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. How much would America's richest people owe if Biden's new tax proposal becomes law? A UC Berkeley study says Elon Musk would owe $50 billion over the next 10 years. Musk said he owed a mighty $11 billion for 2021 after exercising stock options. Jeff Bezos would owe $35 billion. Bill Gates would owe $11 billion. America's top 10 wealthiest in total would pay $215 billion over the next decade. This, of course, would only be possible if unrealized gains were taxed. 
Basically, these people would pay taxes on the increase in assets of things like stocks and real estate, even if they didn't sell them. Congress will soon debate the president's new tax proposal, but Senator Elizabeth Warren is ahead of the pack. This morning, she reiterated that billionaires need to pay their fair share. Anthony's Olin Richards has more. On Tuesday morning, Senator Elizabeth Warren and CNBC's Joe Kernan talked about President Biden's billionaire tax, with Elon Musk as a specific example. He'll pay $11 billion in taxes last year, and yet you've said he needs to stop freeloading off the rest of us. I'm happy to celebrate success, but let's remember, Elon Musk didn't make it on his own. He got huge investments from the government, from taxpayers. Warren says that people who make it to the very top need to pay their fair share. Under Biden's proposal, anyone with a net worth over $100 million needs to pay at least 20% of their income. According to ProPublica, America's 25 richest people paid $13.6 billion in federal income taxes from 2014 to 2018. But in that same period of time, their wealth rose by $401 billion. 13.6 is only 3.4% of $401 billion. A lot of that wealth increase involves unrealized gains, which Biden wants to tax. In other words, they're trying to tax the increase in value of an investment, even when you haven't sold it. They say, hey, you, you have a, a, a mansion. The mansion went up in value a million dollars. We should tax you on that uh, too. That's unearned income. Michael Bussler is a professor of finance at Stockton University. Bussler says it's hard to estimate the value of something that hasn't been sold yet. There's a lot of uncertainty and volatility. They're trying just to redistribute those dollars and leave less money in the productive private sector. That's where growth happens. That's where more job creation happens. And that's what we need more, more of. Vance Ginn is the chief economist of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Ginn says raising taxes, especially on unrealized gains, will disincentivize people from investing, which hurts economic growth. Arlene Richards, NTD News. With the lockdowns in China slowing down business activity, the Chinese regime is now trying to support the economy. Shanghai, now entering its third day of lockdowns, is handing out around $22 billion in tax relief to businesses. That includes subsidies to companies in retail and catering, for them to send their staff for regular COVID tests. The government will also encourage banks to increase credit support and cut interest on loan rates for firms involved in the food supply. It's also encouraging internet platforms to lower service fees. In fact, lockdowns enforced as part of Beijing's zero COVID policy could be costing China billions of dollars. Shanghai, for example, as I said, is now entering its third day of lockdowns. A new study estimates it could cost the city over $10 billion every week it's locked down. Anthony Don Ma has more. A new study is providing some insight on the toll that lockdowns have on China's economy. The study is by economic experts from prestigious universities including Princeton University, Tsinghua University and the Chinese University of Hong Kong. The study calculates that if four of China's largest cities went into full lockdown for a month, it would cost China 12% of its monthly GDP. This amount is calculated by analyzing disruptions in economic activity, specifically by looking at interruptions to freight truck movement between cities. The study found that a month of lockdowns reduces truck movement between cities by more than 50%. 
This is important because the study points out that city-level free truck movement correlates strongly to city-level GDP. 12% of China's monthly GDP is equivalent to $180 billion. This cost would have a big impact on China's economy. There's a general slowing of the economy. I believe this last quarter was one of the slowest economic growths ever in China. And this is what happens when, when, you, when you lock down the economy. China's lockdowns are a product of the country's zero COVID policy. This policy aims to eliminate all virus cases in China. Professor of Economics Anthony Davies says the cost of China's pandemic policies could rise even higher going forward. You have to understand there's a trade-off here. The, the fewer cases we get, the more expensive it becomes to reduce them further. And at some point you realize that we're actually losing lives due to the uh, lockdown policies in greater numbers than we're losing them due to COVID. The study found that if all of China were to go under lockdown for a month, it would cost the country over $9 trillion. Don Ma, NTD News. China's ambassador to Russia is urging Chinese companies to fill the void left by Western brands exiting the country. Top Western brands like Ford and Coca-Cola pulled out of Russia after the war began. The West had imposed heavy financial sanctions on the Kremlin, but China did not. The Chinese ambassador says there are business opportunities as Russia smooths out all sorts of channels, especially in payment and logistics. The U.S. cut some Russian banks off from the SWIFT payment messaging system. But according to the South China Morning Post, one Chinese business says that's encouraged Russians to pay in Chinese yuan instead of U.S. dollars, the global standard. A boon for China for sure. But the ambassador is in calling on all Chinese businesses to pile into Russia. He says bigger state-owned enterprises should be careful not to fall foul of U.S. sanctions. He's encouraging small and medium-sized companies to expand instead. Chris Fenton, media executive and author of Feeding the Dragon, is with us. Chris, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. Chris, does China view this as a significant business opportunity? Well, it's definitely a business opportunity. Obviously, there's always a transaction involved with the, the line of thinking. But remember, the government also is thinking more long term, uh, especially in regards to imports that they're going to need if they try to reunify Taiwan with the mainland. Um, that would cause serious sanctions probably throughout the West. And they will need energy, food, uh, you know, resources and also water, quite frankly, in order to continue to power their economy. So they're looking at Russia as a potential uh, place to import goods and services in the event that there's a sanction. Um, but on the other side of it, Russia does pose a fantastic opportunity for outgoing trade also. What does swapping the West for China mean for Russian businesses? Well, it means survival, quite frankly, for Russian businesses. If you look at whether it's food, whether it's auto parts, whether it's medical supplies, infrastructure components, all kinds of things that are now shut off from the West, from major brands and companies throughout Europe and the United States, China can be that replacement for it. In fact, a lot of those parts uh, we have actually 
brought to the China, the, the Chinese economy. And over time, China has gotten very good at imitating those parts. So that open trade that now is going to be a dynamic between those two countries is going to be very strong and quite frankly, to the detriment of the West, if in fact things with Russia ever open again. What do you think the U.S. government is watching in all this? Well, I think the U.S. government is watching what probably Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party are watching, which is how does this case study of Ukraine-Russia dynamic play into the potential uh, futuristic case study, which might not be too far in the future of the reunification of Taiwan. Uh, I think China is quite shocked at the fact that the unification of the West has been so strong, that it has involved so many very strong sanctions against Russia. They're probably calculating how they can survive that kind of sanctioning with their own country and also starting that plan B strategy in regards to how are they going to supply their 1.4 billion people with all the things that they're scarce of. The Chinese ambassador to Russia has been at least warning Chinese businesses about U.S. sanctions when, when dealing with Russia. Yes, I mean, it's obviously something that they have to be very careful of in regards to really provoking the West in regards to saying, hey, you're fully on Russia's side. They're really trying to keep one foot in two boats that are slowly separating. They're trying to look like, hey, we're not trying to get involved in this by taking full sides of the West or full sides of Russia. We want to be diplomatic and try to solve this problem. But at the same time, they're also really looking at Russia as an opportunity in all this. Do you see the United States coming down a little harder on China if they do, like you described, have their, their feet in two boats? Well, I think the United States and our allies are looking at China very closely to see if there are any things that are go going on underneath the radar in terms of breaking some of those sanction rules and actually doing things that are undercutting what we're trying to get resolved in regards to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Quite frankly, most of us probably believe there is a lot of that going on, but we haven't quite seen that smoking gun yet, and we're definitely looking for it. And if we do find it, you can guarantee there will be retaliation. It's difficult, though, for the U.S. and Western governments, considering how reliant they are on China for so many different things, though, right? Well, that is the big conundrum. I mean, even today, there was an article in Axios about the fact that Tesla not only has 25 percent of its revenues coming from China, but also 25 percent of its manufacturing is in China. And in terms of Apple, 85 percent of its manufacturing is in China and 19 percent of its revenues are from China. So if you look at just those two case studies and extrapolate that to all industries and all companies globally, um, you have a really hard time decoupling from China. So the sanction pain will be felt on both sides of the Pacific and throughout the Western world. It's not going to be an easy game to play. They're incredible numbers, Chris. Chris Fenton, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Walmart dropping cigarettes in some U.S. stores as it looks to expand its health care business. A business uses coal waste to power crypto. We'll look at a Bitcoin mining outfit in Pennsylvania. That and more coming up on NTD Business.
Welcome back. FedEx has a new leader. Raj Subramania has been named chief executive officer of the U.S. package delivery company. He's filling the shoes of Fred Smith, who started the company in 1973. Smith says he feels a, quote, great sense of satisfaction that a leader of the caliber of Raj Subramania will take FedEx into a very successful future. Won't be easy, though. He'll transition from his current role as COO into his new position June 1st, just as the company faces mounting pressure from UPS and Amazon. Now, Walmart will stop selling cigarettes in some of its stores across the United States. It's not immediately clear which stores will no longer sell tobacco products, but the Wall Street Journal reports the company is set to pull cigarettes from shelves in stores in California, Florida, Arkansas, and New Mexico. Walmart is the world's largest retailer, earning international revenues of $120 billion in 2021. The decision to pull cigarettes comes as the retail giant looks to expand its health care business. According to the CDC, smoking cigarettes continues to be the leading cause of preventable disease, disability, and death in the United States. It accounts for more than 480,000 deaths every year. And as cryptocurrencies explode in popularity, so is the amount of electricity required to mine the digital tokens. Tracing concerns about crypto's impact on the environment, but one company says it's found a way to power crypto and help the environment at the same time. Anthony's Andrew Thomas has more. For one company, mining Bitcoin could actually be a way to reduce environmental waste. Stronghold Digital Mining burns waste from abandoned coal mines to generate the electricity that powers hundreds of supercomputers running around the clock. You know, we've made a lot of progress in the past couple of years, and so I'm really proud of what we built. And I think in a way, having the reclamation business and Bitcoin coupled, we're really taking what's a you know, new world uh, you know, blockchain, crypto, uh, and using that to clean up what's a, you know, a, an old, old problem. Bitcoin is issued through a process called mining, which requires computers. Powering those computers involves vast amounts of electricity. But Stronghold Digital Mining CEO Greg Beard believes Bitcoin mining can provide an environmental benefit. This particular site would stay here if it wasn't for Bitcoin. What Bitcoin's done is it's given us an artificial market for our power. These power plants cannot just turn on and turn off at will. You need to have a sustained operation. And in order to have a sustained operation, you need to have a consistent market that's viable. Beard says there are more than 800 abandoned coal mining sites in Pennsylvania that are overrun with coal ash, the byproduct left over from burning coal to produce electricity. The material itself, as it sets, not only leaches into the water and the groundwater and the water wells of these communities, it also can catch on fire and spontaneously combust. If you look off behind me, you can see the discoloration, the pink in there. That's where it's already burned. Stronghold Digital Mining collects coal ash from an old mine in Russellton, Pennsylvania, and burns it to generate the electricity to power the company's Bitcoin mining operation. Pennsylvania is sort of ground zero for where coal has been mined for more than 100 years. And before 1974, all of that coal waste wasn't required to be cleaned up. It was, it was allowable to leave that waste product at the side of the mine mouth. 
Beard says his business has also created hundreds of new jobs in the region, as the company has made strategic investments in the power plant to improve efficiency and lower costs. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Sony is fighting back against Microsoft's Game Pass subscription service. The Japanese firm says it plans a major revamp of its own PlayStation Plus. The service will launch in June and offer hundreds of games, including the latest Spider-Man title. Sony has been under pressure from Microsoft's fast-growing Game Pass, which accounts for 60% of game subs in North America and Europe, compared to just 7% for Sony. But Sony is countering with a premium PlayStation Plus sub for $120 a year, compared to the $180 for the equivalent from Microsoft. Online gaming is seen as the future of the industry, as it doesn't require users to install games on a console or a PC. And finally this evening, when South African businesses were under strict pandemic restrictions in 2020, a local tourism company saw an opportunity right in the middle of the famed Kruger National Park. In today's Andrew Thomas has the details. Built over the Sabi River and on top of the suspended Salati Bridge is the Kruger Shalati Hotel. The train on the bridge offers guests the chance to enjoy wildlife from the comfort of their rooms. I've been many places over the world. I've never experienced anything like this uh, anywhere. So you've got this luxury. Uh, I mean, you can do game watching from the luxury of your bedroom. I mean, you've seen a myriad of animals just sitting in my bed. You know, while brushing my teeth, you know. So, nowhere in the world I think you can experience something like that. For guest Renette Mouton, the hotel is like nothing she's seen before. We've seen quite a few lodges and things, but this is different. I mean, I, this is a train without moving and it's a, it's a wonderful, luxurious experience. Totally different and we just decided that we need to be here. The hotel opened amid lockdown restrictions that negatively impacted the tourism sector and saw many businesses shut down. The old and restored train has 24 carriage rooms with plummeting views of nature, a dedicated wildlife viewing deck, and a swimming pool. Ever since we opened, we had lots of guests who would be extending or guests who would be returning. And that don't normally happen with lodges that have, been, that have been around for a long time, but we've been having that in the first year that we opened. The Kruger Shalati has also been a lifesaver for locals in need of jobs, amid the country's record high unemployment rate of nearly 35%. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And that's the latest from the NTD business team and myself, Paul Graney. Can still catch NTD Evening News with Stephanie Cox. That's at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. You can also follow me on Twitter, too, if you're there. For NTD Business, that's all for today. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.